Hello, and here we are again with another APW Property Podcast and another mosey around the market with a look back at June. APW helps property investors from around the world buy property in the UK, and they've been doing that for over 30 years. With me to discuss what went on in the property market last month are APW property experts Stuart and Callum Williamson. Hello, Stuart. Hello, Paul. And hello, Callum. Hi, Paul. Uh, My name is Paul Shearer, writer and journalist, and I've been involved in property for the last 15 years, writing for broadsheet newspapers and for property companies such as GVA, Capita, IPSX and GLP. A lot of initials there. Stuart, you've also been doing your weekly roundup of the property market. As usual, what was it that caught your eye in June? I think we've seen much of the same that's been going for the last three or four months. Uh, The key drivers are putting pressure on the market, which is basically the war in Ukraine is bringing a lot of uncertainty. Although I do think people now are starting to see that, you know, the end of the world is not nigh, hopefully, and that, you know, it's going to be ring-fenced to a certain extent and there, you know, will be work through the system, although it is a terrible occurrence to be happening. You know, it's still pushing up energy prices. There's still conflict within Europe as to how to deal with those energy prices. That's having a direct impact on the cost of living, which is pushing into wages, which means that people are asking for pay increases. You've got teachers asking for, I think, 10%, train drivers asking for 8%. And I think I noticed today that there was a another team of um, British Airways people asking for another 10%. So those sort of bigger picture things are going to keep on pushing the market the way it's going. And that's really the big picture, I think. Well, also, the, the troubling bit is the... The export of food uh, from Ukraine, or the lack of it, is going to create problems all around the world, and it's how those will impact in the next couple of years is a big uncertainty. But like you say, some areas are going to be um, isolated from it. Yeah, it's true. There's, you know, fertilizer is the biggest problem because some of the major ingredients that go into fertilizers come out of Ukraine, and if you can't fertilize your land in mid-Africa, how is that going to affect your output? So there's going to be a lot of problems in the sub-Saharan region, I think, just in that area, and Southeast Asia. And there was more bad news on inflation, uh, Callum. Uh, yeah, that's that's right. Uh, the BOE was saying that they ex- expect inflation in the UK to rise to around 11% this year and to start to slow next year. Uh, they're saying we expect it to be close to around 2% in two years from now. So... Um... They're predicting it just as a spike. Uh, is that how others in the market see it, Stuart? No, they don't. I mean, other people are looking at it from a far more negative perspective because, you know, this is like a black swan event. This sort of thing hasn't happened before. So how can the Bank of England possibly ha- have the knowledge of what's going to happen? It didn't have the knowledge in the first first case to anticipate it. So how can they do it now? It's pretty weak, really, I think. And there's every chance it'll be running at 3 or 4% per annum over the next five years. Well, there was a, from their report, they said there's more than one reason why the rate of inflation is currently so high. It started to rise in 2021, in large part due to increasing spending on goods during the COVID crisis. As economies around the world, including in the UK, opened up after COVID, restrictions eased, some business struggled to meet this extra demand because of difficulties in getting the materials used in their production. Russia's invasion of Ukraine led to sharp increases in the price of energy, which many people have already felt. The war in Ukraine has also caused an increase in the price of many agricultural commodities, such as grain, which are needed to produce food, and fertiliser. 
There is also increasing pressure on prices from developments at home. These include more job vacancies and the number of people to fill them, which means employers are having to offer higher wages to attract job applicants and businesses are charging more for their products. All of these things push prices and so the rate of inflation up. And then their sting in the tail was, that's why we've raised our interest rate to 1.25%. So Callum, another interest rate rise happened in June. Yes, that's correct. The uh, Monetary Policy Committee voted 6 to 3 to increase the rates by 0.25% to 1.25%. That's the highest rate for 13 years. Uh, the three against it didn't vote against a rise. They actually wanted to I- increase the rate rise to 0.5%, which would have taken it to 1.5%. Um, this was sort of following on from an aggressive rate rise by the Fed in America of 0.75 to 1.75 altogether. Uh, this came off the back of a situation where most people were expecting just a half percent rise. So they too are battling inflation, which rose to a 41-year high in May. So it still seems that the only way is up for interest rates in the short term. Uh, how is the mortgage market reacting to these rises, Stuart? Well, as over there, passing it on as quickly as possible to the consumer so that um, they can keep their margins nice and healthy. And there's basically a 0.45% difference between two-year and 10-year fix. But it's really more about what they expect to happen in the future and you know, what they're going to be doing. The number of products that were on the market has been cut by nearly 70%. So they're basically taking any products that might be a risk for them off the market until they see what the Bank of England is going to do next. Well, there was other news from the Bank of England, which was the uh, mortgage affordability tests. Tell us a bit about that, Stuart. Basically, there's there's three pillars to controlling risk in the mortgage market. And one of those is the affordability test, where basically they say, could you afford this this mortgage if interest rents went up by more than 3%, then it's best lending practice, which is the bank must look at what it expects to go on in the market, which is could the this this person pay their mortgage if the, the rate went up by a full 1%, and then finally is what is the multiple of their income that they're actually spending on this, and it can't go more than 4.5 times. Uh, the 1st of August, I think, is when they take out the... Three percent, that 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 stress test, but the four point five times income stays. No, no, you're correct. Sorry, but the point the point is, is once you take that three percent away, then where does it leave the market? It doesn't make it any more affordable in reality because in London they're already up to the full lending levels, so you're not going to actually be helping the market where there's a shortage. And talk about leveling up, that sort of scenario, then. You go out to the places like Manchester and Birmingham, prices are going up so quickly up there, people will be going to the 4.5 times limit virtually straight away. So really by getting rid of this um, 3%, 3 you know, issue isn't really going to help at all. Yeah, and they, they also think that the banks themselves are constrained by uh, what's called the um, Mortgage Conduct of Business Responsibility Test. The, the Financial Conduct Authority has the MCOB rules, um, which they think should should cover this relaxing or relaxation slightly of, of the affordability test. You're seeing it now, some better, better rates coming onto the market. If you're purchasing through a company, there's, there's banks and building societies that are 
offering, so this would be purely for buy-to-let, that are offering preferential rates. I think Gatehouse, uh, a lender called Gatehouse, are offering a higher LTV and a lower rate for those people that purchase through a limited company as opposed to in their personal name, you know. So there are, you know, as one door closes or one or one option changes, there are others opening. So for the, for the company ownership perspective, I think... Um, you know, the mortgage market is looking like it's easing because the government are wanting people or wanting more and more people to purchase via companies for uh, buy-to-let anyway, as I say. So uh, I thought that was quite interesting. I think what's quite interesting, to be fair, is that most of these off-the-shelf company formation companies don't let you choose your own name. So if I wanted to own Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory Incorporation Limited and have it own all my properties, it couldn't because they're all computerized now. Because the next person wants to buy that company off you, probably wouldn't want Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory Incorporated. They'd be quite happy with GG41236, which is sad, really. It's the death of fun. I reckon you'd get a few people keen to buy Willy Wonka's. I think you, I, I think, you I think Willy Wonka's already. Willy Wonka's already bought the name. Actually, he's doing rather well in property. I could imagine that. <laughs> Uh, so the other big event in June, uh, the publication of the government's long-anticipated rental reform bill. Yes, that's correct, Paul. It's on the agenda to go through Parliament this session, actually, um, as announced in the Queen's speech. This is what the government is saying in its rental reform bill. It's saying it's the biggest shake-up for 30 years. Uh, you've got 4.4 million renters in the private sector, or the PRS as it's called, 2.3 million landlords... They want to promise that millions of renters can get to live in decent homes. So there is a decent home standard that they're wanting to put across the UK. And they think that there are far too many tenants living in substandard homes. They're saying currently 2.8 million homes are unfit. Uh, They want the landlords to adhere to a legally binding standard on decency. The big new thing was replacing Section 21, no-fault eviction. So Section 21 was a way that landlords were able to just hand notice to tenants and there was not much that they could do about it. They're going to change that and move. they want to move everything onto different kinds of tenancies. As a balance to that, they want to strengthen the repossession grounds for landlords uh, in different ways with a new ombudsman to deal with disputes and a new fancy portal, which means that everything, all the information for tenants and landlords should be on that. Some interesting figures in the white paper, I thought, which the private renters spend 31% of their income on housing. Uh, Social renters spend 29% of their income on housing, whereas mortgage holders spend only 18% on housing. So, They were saying that PRS is the most expensive and least secure, lowest quality housing to 4.4 million households, 1.5 million of those with children and 382,000 over 65. So that's the overview of what they were saying. What do you think so far, Stuart? Well, I think there's a lot of positivity in there. If you compare it to other markets around the world, for example, in Australia, then they have a much tighter framework which means that you get better quality properties that are rented out. And I think in reality, you get a much higher level of rental income because of that. But at the same time, there's some you know, madness. You didn't mention in there about the um, pets issue in that you won't be able to say you can't bring your pets anymore. So if you wanted to bring your golden eagle or your sloth, then the landlord would have to let you do that. Whereas nowadays, I think it's about 5% of landlords accept animals of any sort. So there is stuff in there that is pretty mad. 
But overall, it's quite strong and it's a good way of tightening up the market, making it fairer for everyone, I think. I was going to come to the pets issue in, in a short while, but uh, Callum, firstly, what's your view of what's your reaction to it so far? Yeah, sorry, just on the um, on the pets thing, I was reading an article earlier this week and we've got landlords that allow pets. We're getting very frustrated by the changes because that was their sort of uh, market niche and sort of allowing pets meant they got longer uh, longer term, better quality tenants, you know, people with small dogs or a cat, they're not necessarily much trouble. But um, just on the reform, I mean, yeah, overall, I think it's obviously good news. I would just question, you know, having sort of minimum standard homes and stuff like that, you know, uh, who's going to be paying for that? And if it's going to be the landlords, how many landlords is that going to push out of the market, which um, will have a knock on impact with supply in the market, you know, so I think it's all good stuff but like any of these sort of reforms and changes they bring in it's a case of well who's going to be paying for it by when um, and what will the impact be on sort of the supply and the demand of the of the quality housing stock let's have a look at their 12 point plan um and uh, you can react as we go so the first one all prs meet decent home standard by 2030 and they're saying one in five is currently a, an unfit home and you covered that by saying who's going to pay for that stuart what do you think well, who's going to set the standard? I mean, you know, we talked about in, in previous Moses, we've talked about um, the uh, EPC certification coming in in 2025, 2028. And, you know, they can't set standards for that, which has been going on for quite some time. Who's going to set a standard for this? I don't believe it'll be an equal standard. What I think is fair probably isn't what you think is fair. I think that the decent home standard might be already an existing kite mark, but they're obviously going to have to identify and qualify what exactly they mean by that by 2030. They want to accelerate quality improvements. That's a, that's another random saying, isn't it? It's like saying, I must be better. You know, better at what? <laughs> I don't know, I'm sure there's something in there. What do you know, Callum? Oh, well, yeah, accelerate quality improvements. I mean, I, I don't know whether this is necessarily relevant to the pod, but I used to have a friend at university who was very, very good at just using circle words in business terms, and he would string whole sentences together and not actually say anything. And I sort of feel like accelerate quality improvements is something straight out of his playbook. So, Well, actually, I was just misquoting. I will give you the full quote. We will accelerate quality improvements in the areas that need it most. Uh, we will run pilot schemes with a selection of local councils to explore different ways of enforcing standards and work with landlords to speed up adoption of the decent homes standard. Okay, great. I mean, you know, improving the quality of the home you offer could have a knock-on in that it improves the quality of the tenant you have. So good news for landlords and renters. Good, Okay. Uh, end of section 21, this is, a, a, and create a simple, more secure tenancy structure. You know, tenants come in all shapes and sizes, and uh, as do humans, you know, and the way you deal with them. And there are some people out there who take advantage, come what may. And I think if you do get rid of section 21 completely, then that would lead to a whole potential abuse of the system. So people will abuse the properties, abuse their position as protected tenants and not do what they should do as tenants. I mean, it's too broad brush. They answer that with their, with point four, which is reform possession rights so landlords can regain possession where necessary. 
Yes, you've got to prove, you have to prove that they are delinquent on the rent over a period, that this has been done over a period. So you have to prove that they are doing something incorrect as opposed to the opposite. So it's a case of guilty till found innocent as opposed to innocent till found guilty. Yeah, I guess it, the devil's in the detail, right? You know, it would be, uh, I wasn't aware of the exact details of what needs to be proved to, you know, regain possession and, and whatnot. But I think um, it seems fair enough, you know, if, if someone is in the wrong and you can prove it, then then great. Um, but yeah, I, I would like to know a bit more about the specific details of it. Well, with rental delinquency, the, obviously the big problem at the moment is the delay in the courts. Um, so point seven that they have is tackle court delays and they want to speed up the system. Rent rises only once a year, plus the tenants have a right to challenge through the first tier tribunal. So um, fresh tribunals and, you know, to navigate the disputes between tenants and landlords and an ombudsman to help with the process. What's what happened to the free markets? You know, if someone puts up a puts up the rent and, and you can't afford it, then go and live somewhere where you can afford the rent. You know, I, I appreciate there's probably, you know, well, there are a lot of people that maybe, you know, at the lower lower end that can't afford to do that and we should protect them. But for the majority of people, I think you probably can move to a cheaper place if you're not happy with what the landlord's doing. I mean, I did it myself last year. The landlord put up the price on the flat I was living in and so I moved to a different part of the city and moved into a three-bed house, which was the same price as the flat, you know. So you have the option. It's not as if you, you have to stay and pay the higher price. Okay. Uh, a property portal full of information? Great idea. Okay. Uh, strengthen council's enforcement powers and ability to crack down on criminal landlords? In principle, you know, yes, it all sounds great. And, you know, a lovely thing to do. And it should happen, and criminal landlords should be got out, you know. Slum landlords shouldn't be around. But, I mean, again, who makes the decision as to who is a criminal landlord and who isn't? Well, criminal landlords, there are some, you know, obviously uh, dodgy properties, and there are people who exploit the system and get away with it by by renting appalling accommodation to vulnerable tenants. But, as you say, it's a question of how that is managed. Yeah, and I, th I think even actually, you know, just the fact that the discussion is taking place and it's starting to be more widely discussed, I think, is a positive thing, you know, because that in itself will draw attention to, you know, to, to landlords that are taking advantage and other people that are taking advantage. So, you know, just just bringing awareness to the topic, I think, is a good start. But it's, it's you know, yeah, where and when, uh, by when does all of this happen? Ban discrimination against benefit tenants and families? I think it's fair, for sure. I mean, it's a fair society we should live in, and it shouldn't be discrimination against them, but it will naturally happen. There shouldn't be discrimination against, you know, benefits, tenants and families. You know, everyone is, most people are good people and most people are trying to better their lives and you need to give people the chance to do that. So I think that's great, yeah, as long as, again, you know, as Stuart said, there will be people that do uh, discriminate still low. So, you know, how, how do you, where's the line? And here's the pet one. We're on point 11 of their 12-point plan. Right to ask if they can have pets if pet is insured. Have they actually built that into it about the insurance? I didn't realise that was the case. Yes. And that the landlord may not unreasonably refuse a pet. 
Okay, so so again, there's a. Have you ever been in? They've created a grey area within it where the lady owns eight cats or the man owns five dogs, and the smell you get in there, and how do you ever get that smell out? You know, it's the same with when I was living in in Malaysia. I used to love cooking curries, and consequently, the house stank of curry for days, if not longer, afterwards. You just couldn't get it out. So, how do you compensate landlords for that? Fair enough. So, last one: passporting deposits to be explored with industry experts. So, at the moment, a tenant—you uh, know—you obviously pay your deposit for a, a tenancy, which is then set against any damage uh, at the end of that tenancy. But they're suggesting that you should be able to move that deposit to your new rental when you move, uh, because obviously a big problem for tenants is not is paying the first month's rent and coming up with a deposit at the same time when they start a tenancy. Passporting. Um, I mean, just off the top of my head, the deposit is there, I guess, uh, to act as a um, what's the word a an incentive to, to put people off damaging or leaving in a, in, a, in a bad position. So if you just have a deposit that passports between places, I guess that, you know, you're not having to pay it fresh every time. So the, perhaps the incentive of the potential lost money goes after the first one or two transfers. I don't know if that, if I've made that uh, point clearly, but what I would have thought off the top of my head. Yes, it's obviously there. The deposit is, uh, uh, like you say, it's an incentive not to damage the property work during your tenancy. Anyway, they are all they promise to do is explore it with industry experts. So again, it's going to be the devil in the detail. Um, you know, in, there was some... I'll just say that in Australia they do do that though. You can put your deposit with the rental board. I think it's the rental board, and they hold it yeah, there I... for you, and then you can transfer it to a new landlord with just the same re- a different reference number. I think that system is very good, and there's some uh, with university. I remember when I was at uni, there there are there's a specific student university deposit board and you transfer it there and you have a special code and both the landlord and the tenant, the students need to agree. Then at the end of the tenancy, they agree the terms and then it's released on that basis. So some sort of protection where it's held with a third party. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great concept. Well, they already do that with, with the deposit schemes. It is held with a different accredited deposit schemes rather than it just going into the landlord's pocket uh, and you crossing your fingers and hoping that the landlord will give it back to you at the end of the tenancy. But they're they're obviously exploring something of a way of not having to close down a deposit and opening it it up for when one tenancy ends and another starts. There was a response from the NRLA, which is the National Residential Landlords Association. Uh, they have obviously been, you know, on this case for quite a while. They think that the government is being a bit anti-landlord in its rhetoric and has been for a while. And they'd like to rein that back and then just make the point that the majority of landlords are providing good quality homes to rent. There is an issue with the student tenancies, which are really uh, you know uh, they start at the beginning of the academic year and they need to end at the end of the academic year and there's a worry about moving everything onto periodic tenancies uh, and ending this eviction idea is going to create a problem in the student market uh, so they're just going to hope the government addresses that issue in that particular sector of the market 
they want to come up with firm principles as to how councils and police can support landlords to tackle antisocial tenants, uh, perhaps the man with the five dogs that you mentioned there, Stuart. They want to reform the courts before the Section 21 powers are removed so that there isn't then this lengthy court delay uh, and lengthy wait for repossession, which there is at the moment. Uh, abolish local licensing once the new property portal is introduced. So obviously they've got a little beef about different councils operating the local licensing schemes that they have for properties uh, very differently around the country. And there are 333 local councils in England. Any thoughts on the NRLA's responses? I think it's strong. It's what it, you know. They're covering good topics and good points that should be brought up. The um, interference in the market, although it's good, does lead to maybe people leaving the market because they just can't be bothered with all the red tape. And that's exactly what we don't want because there's a shortage of accommodation as there is, and you know, Savills are expecting rents to go up by nearly 20% over the next five years. That's because there is a shortage of good stock out there that people want to rent. So if you get too much red tape, you'll have people leaving the market, which is not what they want at all. Yeah, I, I agree with what Stuart said there. Yeah, no, nothing more to add. Strong points from them, and, and that's exactly it. You know, They they don't want to be forcing uh, landlords out of the market because that creates another issue, so it's about striking a balance. Okay. Uh, well, that's all we've got time for this week. Um, thanks to both of you, Stuart. Thank you very much. And thank you, Callum. Cheerio, Paul. Next week, we're going to be looking at tenancies, how they're currently set up, and what the impact of the rental reform bill's idea of moving to periodic tenancies might be. Until then, have a lovely day. Thanks for listening to this episode of our podcast series produced for APW by Emma Holton at Brilliant Audio. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe, hit like, share it with your friends. If you didn't, keep stum. You can find more episodes in all your usual podcast places.